pray with me if you would. There's something I forgot to pray about, and I want to do that so you can be reminded to be praying as well. Father, thank you again for, for this morning. Thank you for a great song that we were able to enjoy. To enjoy it, I trust, for your glory and for your honor, even as it reminded us of some very familiar, familiar lyrics in response to you and to your truth. Uh, Lord, this morning, uh, we, I certainly think of and, and, and am encouraged to remind everyone else Lord, I think of those uh, 30-some people who are in Canada who were sent out from the church to go there and to do ministry. Uh, Lord, I would pray for them. And we pray as a church, even corporately now, that you might strengthen them, that you might be constantly reminding them that it's not about them. That's not why they're there. Uh, it's so much bigger. It's all about Christ, and it's about exalting Him as they serve and exalting Him as they evangelize and exalting Him as they even communicate one with another. Thank you so much that they're there. Thank you that uh, you make great promises about the gospel. You make great promises about your word so that they might be encouraged, so that we might be encouraged that your word will go out and that it will accomplish your purposes for your honor and for your glory. Lord, now during this time when we study your word together, may it be a rich time, may it be a time when we can focus even supernaturally. And ultimately, God, we would ask that you would do a work in our hearts so that we might respond to you appropriately and give you the attention and the honor that is rightfully yours as God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to begin this morning simply by asking a very simple question, and yet it ends up being profound as far as the answer is concerned. And that question is, what is worship? What is worship? It's going to be the question for the hour. Some of you might be thinking, well, if the pastor doesn't know that, why is he the pastor? But uh, maybe, hopefully, that's just what our kids are asking. It's the question for the hour because some say that worship is tied to lighting candles, kneeling, and reciting prepared readings. Some say worship is singing and music. Some say worship is tied to a place. Some say worship is related to falling over. Some say worship is something you observe. Some say worship is to be ecumenical. Some say worship is what you make of it. Some say worship is what Christians do on Sundays. Some say worship is tied to a place, a house of worship. My question that I ask is, what is worship? What does it really, what what, what does it really mean to worship God? And that's the question we're going to use as the, as the catalyst to get us started in this study. And I'm, by the grace of God, going to get through the first two of ten conclusions that we need to draw from the Bible about genuine Christian worship. So we're going to be in the Bible today, not in one book of the Bible. We're going to be uh, seeking to go from Genesis to Revelation in one way or another over the next several weeks, answering the question, what, what is worship? What is it? We're going to, going to attempt to, 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 to build, to construct, to, to think biblically about worship. Now, I want to give you some of my motivations for doing this, and I won't give you an exhaustive list as we look at this list of, of some motivations, just to tell you why this. Why, why are we talking about this matter? Well, one reason why I want to talk about worship today, uh, a motivation, is because everyone worships. If you turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 1, we're not actually to the list yet, but everyone worships and that motivates me. I realize that there are people who say they're, they're atheists, ah, theists. They don't believe in God. They might even say they don't worship. You could even be here today and say you're an atheist and, and I, I, I take issue with you, Pastor. I don't worship. 
Well, that's fine. I, I love it that you have the freedom in this country to say that, and you can. Um, God, which uh, ultimately is who I'm going to believe, believe uh, says that everyone worships. Romans chapter 1 is where I would draw such a conclusion from, where it says in verse 20, For since the creation of the world, that is time as we've known it, Romans 1.20, His invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power uh, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And we won't emphasize the without excuse uh, portion this morning, but simply to see. God has revealed Himself. God has made Himself known. God has communicated, and He has communicated through what He has made. So theologians call this general revelation. Uh, the, the human anatomy, the sun, the stars, the moon, the solar system, uh, all the plants, all these different things. Uh, God ha- has communicated to everyone, ever since time began as we know it, truth about Himself. Say, so that doesn't prove the point. Well, you're right, it doesn't yet, but look at verse 25. Still in the same context, it says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So God revealed himself truthfully. Uh, They should have known who he was as a result of that, but because of sin, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. God reveals himself to everyone, and what does everyone do? Everyone worships the one true God who made all of this stuff. No, the point here is God reveals Himself to everyone and what ends up happening is we don't look at the stars, sun, moon, skies, anatomy and all of these things and worship the one true God. We worship the creation. We worship ourselves. We worship things. We, we don't worship the one true God. But we do worship. That's the simple point I'm trying to make from Romans chapter 1. We, we do worship. God would say everyone worships. It wasn't Pascal, the French philosopher, who came up with this idea that everyone has a God-shaped void. Romans 1 taught that far before Pascal came up with that idea, or Augustine, whoever you want to attribute it to. It's true, there's something in us that tells us there's a God, but because of sin, we, we twist it. As Romans 1 goes on to say, we won't get into the details of that. We suppress the truth, we push the truth down because of sin, so we don't accept God for His revelation of Himself. Simple point. Everyone worships. Well, knowing that, I want to talk about it. I want to talk about it to you and, and make the point, well, you might say you don't worship, but in fact, God says you do. So, so we should talk about this. This is significant. This is important. Another motivation would be that, that many who do worship, worship falsely. Many who do worship, worship falsely. We can take this from passages like Acts 17. Like John chapter 4, even a very religious person there, well, Acts 17 or John chapter 4. John chapter 4, people who even believe part of the Bible is true. And Jesus breaks all social graces, if you will, on many different levels. But he flat out tells the Samaritan woman, basically, you're wrong and so are the Samaritans. You don't really worship God. Wow! That's a, that's a pretty strong statement. You know, it reminds me of the, the trendy Jesus bracelets that were out a while back. What would Jesus do? Well, when talking to someone who worships God falsely, he would tell her. Uh, he broke all social graces, but he spoke the truth to her. My simple point for now is, let's remember, there is such a thing as false worship. Jesus confronted false worship. Paul confronted false worship in Acts 17. We see it all over the place. Well, I don't know about you, but that motivates me as well. Hmm, okay, I am a worshiper. And it is possible to worship God falsely. It's got Pat's attention. I don't want to be a false worshiper. 
I don't want Jesus to conclude that I'm a false worshiper. I, I don't want that to be God's appraisal of me. Oh, and now I'm going to put on my pastoral hat, my teacher hat. I don't want you to worship God falsely either. I don't want you to be what we see over and over again in the Old Testament. Someone actually categorized it. I don't know if it's genuine or correct or not. And they looked at all the different texts in the Old Testament that talk about worship, whether it be commending or rebuking, and concluded that somewhere around 30% of all the passages that deal with worship in the Old Testament were specifically condemning idolatry. Oh, more evidence. It is possible for you and for me to worship, yes, but to worship falsely. I, I don't want to do that. I don't want you to do that either. So I'm even more motivated. Another motivation would be, from John chapter 4, would be that, that God looks for genuine worship. In John chapter 4, Jesus says, God seeks true worshipers. Well, that assumes again that there's such a thing as false worshipers. But if He is, in, if he is looking for genuine worship, by the grace of God, I want Him to find it in my life. I want Him to see it in my life and, 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 and to be pleased, if you will, with what He's doing in my life as I'm truly worshiping Him. And I want the same thing for you. I don't think it's extrapolating too much to make this all personal and say, God is looking to see if you're one of those who really worship Him. Well, I don't know about you, but now all of a sudden I'm motivated. I want to know about what the Bible says regarding the answer, what is worship? How can we do it if we don't even know what it is? And then one more motivation. It's pretty broad. I'm motivated to study this and to preach on this because there's so much confusion about what worship is. There's so much confusion. And I'm not talking about in some other country, although there's confusion there. I'm not specifically thinking about in some other religious group although there's confusion there. I'm not thinking about confusion, per se, and really motivated about confusion in some particular denomination, per se. You know, it really motivates me to say, you know, I need to talk about this. I need to preach on this, and I need to interact and, and hopefully get everyone else thinking about this. It's because there's confusion in our camp. If I were really bold, I would say there's confusion amongst us. I won't do that because I'm not very bold. You know, listen to some of the conversations that take place. And if you really are thinking in biblical terms, you, you'll conclude a person doesn't really understand worship. It's kind of troubling. It's kind of troubling. So I'm motivated. I don't know about you. If you're not motivated, sorry. Um, praying for you. <laughs> Hopefully the Holy Spirit will motivate you in a way I can never motivate you. But this really is an important matter. What is worship? And I'm using hopefully Holy Spirit-driven control right now to not give you a bunch of examples of bad thinking about worship. I think we'll get there eventually. But we really don't have this thing figured out. And if we don't have it figured out, then we don't really have true worship figured out insofar as we misunderstand it. Well, before we get to the list, yes, we will get there eventually. A basic definition of worship would be this. To worship is to show honor to someone or something great. I think everyone can agree on that. It's very generic. To worship is to show honor to someone or something great. The idea is honor. 
the idea is exaltation. You honor someone or something great. I'll just choose one New Testament word for this. The Greek word proskuneo uh, is uh, an interesting word that's used a lot in the Greek New Testament for worship. Pros toward kuneo kiss. Sometimes translated worship. You're kissing toward. Well, the image would be no doubt even in a kingly context where you were bowing down to kiss and, and to pay homage, to show respect. You're bowing down toward to show honor and respect because you see that king or whatever, whoever it is, as superior to you, as better, as more significant. Kind of interesting fun fact regarding this. Uh, there, I read some uh, a wedding vow, an old English wedding vow, where the husband says to the wife, With my body, I thee worship. Now, I suppose you could say, well, that, that's the idea that it's a Christian worldview and you're, 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 you know, you're giving your all to your wife and it's an act of worship to God, but that's not the way you take it at face value. The idea is right because you, you, you value your wife as significant and more significant and, and you, you want to show respect to her, but I would never use the word worship, right? At least not in the way we use that word and even the biblical way the word is used. But nevertheless, the idea is above you, more significant than you, giving them uh, the, the, the most significant attention would be kind of the idea involved in worship. There are other words, synonyms, honor, praise, and those things, and we won't get into those now. All right, motivated? No? <laughs> All right, we're motivated. I'm motivated. I'll pretend you're motivated and just take you at face value as we gather here as the frozen chosen at Omaha Bible Church. Somebody said amen. Good. We're getting warmer. All right. Let's at least look at the first couple of biblical conclusions that we need to draw about biblical worship, real, genuine worship from a biblical worldview. Number one, Christian worship is directed toward God alone. Christian worship is directed toward God alone alone. This one is very simple. It's very basic. I know that, but it seems to be where we need to start. If you have a Bible, you can go to the very last book. You can go to the book of Revelation, chapter 22. If you're familiar with the Bible very much at all, you'll know exactly where I'm going. It's a great text at the end of the Bible to see that, yeah, worship, worship is for God, and it is for God and only God. And in Revelation chapter 22, you'll see that this is, this is clear. This is right. And we'll see it in the Old Testament as well. Look at there, look there, verse 8 of Revelation 22. Verse 8, John writes, I, John, probably more along the lines of, I, John, would be the idea after what he has seen. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel, the messenger, who showed me these things. And as someone said, you know what? If you were John, you would too. <laughs> he saw his mind is so blown. He's never been in the presence of anyone so holy other than Jesus Christ himself. And here he is, a sinner, and he's in front of a, a holy angel who'd never sinned before. And what does he do? He just he, he gives homage. He pays homage. He, he bows down and he worships. And then verse 9, but he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Stop. You got it wrong. Worship God. You need to worship God. The, the implication is only worship God. Don't do that. Don't do that in my life. 
Worship God. It's only for God. It's not for me. It's no wonder this is said in the New Testament because you go back to the Old Testament, the first of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or a likeness that is of what is in heaven or above or in earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Verse 5, You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And remember, if God is a jealous God and there are other gods, then He's got a problem. He's an egomaniac. But if there's only one God, which is the foundation for everything in the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, if there's only one God, then for Him to be anything other than a jealous God would be what? Would be wrong for Him to do anything other than demand all of our worship and and for Him to allow worship to go to something or someone else would be for God to recognize the value in something or someone else and to somehow rival His own. How about this? It would be for God to be Himself an idolater. See, sometimes we get a little bent out of shape. God is a jealous God. I've heard Oprah Winfrey make fun of this God because He's a jealous God. Well, she has no idea what she's talking about. I realize she's America's theologian, but she has no idea what she's talking about. God says, I am a jealous God. Not only does He say that there in Exodus 20, verse 5, in Exodus 34, 14, His name is jealous. That is who He is at the core of His being as the one true God. Well, this makes sense, folks. It makes sense that we worship this one true God and to give Him all of our praise and all of our worship and to give Him our attention because He's the only one. Worship is for God. It is reserved for God. It is preserved for God. And what does the Bible call those who share that with something or someone else? What's the word for it? It's idolatry. And if you haven't read the Bible lately with a view toward this, I would encourage you to do it. You know what gets God mad? It seems like above just about anything else. It's idolatry. It's right for God to be angry with idolatry because it's illogical. It doesn't make sense. He's the only God. It makes sense. Well, just how, how mad is God at idolatry? If you have a Bible, I'll encourage you to turn to Galatians you turn to Romans if you were already there you can just move your way to the right Galatians uh, will come shortly 1 Corinthians 2 Corinthians Galatians well, I mean how, how serious should we take this idolatry thing because all of a sudden this becomes a motivation too God I don't want to be an idolater but you know since it's not that big of a deal I'll, I'll give no I, it is a big deal it's a huge deal in Galatians chapter 5, and this would be a good place for me to, 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 to give a little plug for the series that starts tonight, which is on the fruit of the Spirit, which comes after this. It's in response to this. It's over and against this. And it will be good for us as a church to go through that this summer. But Galatians 5.19 says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. These, these are ungodly deeds. Which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, verse 20, idolatry. Well, then he goes on to include that with sorcery, all these other things. And then, did you notice there in verse 21, drop down to the end, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
connect the dots, idolaters don't go to heaven. That's a real tactful, nice way of saying idolaters go to hell. As God says multiple times in the Old Testament, I will not give my glory to another. This makes sense because he's the only God. This is just logic, biblical uh, logic. It makes sense. Well, let's, uh, let's apply this a little bit and not just have it be some sort of uh, practice in, in, in knowledge and information. You know, kind of like, so, so what? What should I conclude as a result of this? Well, well the, the outcome would naturally be, well, then, then, then I only want to worship God, right? I mean, I want to reserve my, my greatest affection, my greatest passion for God. Yes, I love my family and I love my children and I love my wife and I love all these different things that we do and I love recreation and, and, and all these things are good, but what I need to do is not worship them and serve them, i.e. Romans 1. That's idolatry. I need to see my wife and my children in recreation and job and all those kind of things as good gifts from God and then I respond in worship. This all makes sense. God gives us these good gifts and we respond in worship. I only want to worship God. This means obviously I don't worship angels. We saw that from John's example. We'd see it in Colossians chapter 2. And there are those flagrant examples. We don't worship other people as much as we might admire them. We don't worship Mary. Regardless of what you want to call it, we don't worship Mary. That would be flagrant idolatry. Those are the obvious things. I think we, most of us would agree, yeah, those, those are, that would not be appropriate. That seems pretty common sense. But, but how else do we need to avoid idolatry? Let's think about this a little bit. How else do we need to, to make sure that God is supreme and God is the sole object of our worship? Well, I would suggest to you that one important factor is you think rightly about who God is. That He truly is jealous as His name that He truly does require your all. Think about who God is. It was A.W. Tozer in the first extra-biblical Christian book I think I ever read as a new Christian, his book about uh, the attributes of God. I've never forgotten what he said in that book, and it was so helpful. Not biblical, but not unbiblical either. Helpful. The essence of idolatry is wrong thinking about God. That's worth the price of the book. The essence of idolatry is wrong thinking about God. If God to me is a God who accepts everyone, God to me is a God who's not jealous, God to me is a God I've created in my own image according to my own likeness and I've bowed down to it, And I am an idolater because it's not the one true God, right? So we're we're much too sophisticated typically to say, oh, we're going to worship angels. Well, maybe. (laughs) Maybe at least in this room. (laughs) We're going to worship people. But you know, we have all kinds of, of wrong thinking haunting our minds that needs to be gotten rid of. And how do we get rid of it? Well, we go to the Bible and, and we say, God, who are you? Reveal yourself to me so I can think rightly about you because that will translate into rightly worshiping you. Maybe I'll ask you this question. What, what, what captures your affections? What, what, what really moves you? What are you passionate about? 
Well, again, I'm passionate about my family. I'm passionate about my job. I'm passionate about recreation. I'm passionate about friendships. Those things aren't bad. Those are good gifts from God, provided they don't become the object. of our consuming affections, of our worship? That's a good question for you, ask, for you to ask yourself. What moves you? What, what, what are you really passionate about? And do you see those things as good gifts from God? Carson, in his helpful book on worship, says, Americans work at their play, play at their worship, and worship their work. If that's convicting... Great. True Christian worship is reserved for God alone. That should be what defines us. We're, we're people who believe in the one God. It would make sense that we, we give Him our worship. It's just consistent with monotheism. What do I value most? What captures my affections? What do, I, what do I wake up at night thinking about? What moves me? How about this? Let's borrow from the Old Testament and say, what do I sacrifice for? Maybe we would say, what do I sacrifice to? We've adopted this into our language, right, as Americans in the 21st century. You know, I've got to make some sacrifices for my family. I've got to not travel so much. You know what? I need to make some sacrifices for my job. I need to travel more. These are all fine things. They're necessary things. At times. Do you sacrifice for valuing God? Put it another way. Do you sacrifice to God or do you just sacrifice to your job? This is good for us to think about. God and God alone is the object of our worship if we're Christians. Well, let's move on. Even for the sake of time, more could be said there. Number two, Christian worship is in response to God. Christian worship is in response to God. If you turn in your Bible to Psalm 99, I think we would see this all over the place, but this is one that really makes the connection clearly for us right there in a couple of different texts. Psalm 99, if you're new to the Bible, the book of Psalms is usually about in the middle. The book of Proverbs is on the right and Job is on the left. Psalm 99, we're going to see that worship is in response to God. Okay, we can see that it's only for God. Well, it's in response to God as well. Psalm 99 is is pretty amazing where it says, if you look with me there in verse 5, exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. Why? What's the motivator? Right there. Holy is He. Oh, so what's going to be the catalyst to my worship? Who God is causes me to want to worship Him. He says, in essence, the same thing in verse 9. If you look there, you'll see, Exalt the Lord our God and, and worship at His holy hill. Why? What's the motivation? For holy is the Lord our God. You are supposed to be worshiping God, fellow brother or sister in Christ, because of who God is. Now we could move on now. But most of us wouldn't get it. Because what does it mean for God to be holy? It's just a church word, a song word, 
What is that? What, what does it mean to be holy? Okay, I need, to, I need to know who God is, and that will cause me to worship Him. And here's one example. He's holy. We can look at other examples. He's righteous. He's just. We can look at other examples. He is love. He is jealous. He is merciful. He is gracious. He's compassionate. We can look at all of these different attributes of God, these, the, these perfections of God. And the, the point would be, look to who He is, and that will translate into worship. We're just looking at holiness now by way of an example. What's holiness? Well, I, I could take a survey and, and someone no doubt would say, uh, and, and it would be a good answer, some, some of you would say, or someone would say, holiness means sinless. And I would say, great answer, thank you, you get half credit. And then someone else who's a little bit more sophisticated, maybe taking a few classes, they'd say, oh, no, and maybe you'd even quote a Greek or Hebrew word to me. You'd say, holiness is separation from sin. And I would say, good answer, you get two-thirds credit. And if you use the fancy word, I might dock you a little bit. Because by your big knowledge that you wore on your shirt sleeve, you still didn't get the answer right. Now, we're just doing this as an exercise so we can understand the big idea. The bigger point is we worship God in response to knowing who He is. What's it mean for God to be holy? Well, back to that second answer, or the third, I can't remember now. The essence of holiness is separation. Not just separation from sin, though it certainly includes that. I mentioned at the first hour. Right now, here's what, I, here's what I have in my notes. Basically, all I have in my notes right now is, uh, are these words. Go off on holiness. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Because this is just natural and normal to talk about because uh, you need to be aware of this because it's Genesis to Revelation. God is holy. It's all over the place. We should know this. And if there's never been a time when you've come to own these things, I hope I can get in your, your little personal space for a few minutes and say you need to get this. And once you get this, so to speak, you'll know that you haven't gotten it and you need to keep working it out. And then you'll figure out that you need to move on to other attributes of God as well. And it, this is the very thing that's gonna, going to fuel your worship. It's going it's to fan the flames of personal worship, corporate worship. Holiness means separate. Holy, holy, holiness means different. Holiness means distant. Away from would be, I'm just trying to use synonyms to get the idea, the big idea across. We don't think in those terms, but I want you to think in those terms for a little while. The angels in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. Sinless, sinless, sinless. Well, that's true, but those angels who are saying that to him are also sinless. They're holy angels too, but, but it's as if they're holy with a lowercase h. And he's holy with an uppercase H. And, and they're seeing God as holy in a way that they're not. Why? It's because this idea is bigger than separation from sin or sinless. It has to do with being otherly, distant, far away. How about this unreachable, untouchable, completely different? So it's as if they're saying, uh, they're saying, uh, above us, above us, above us, beyond us, beyond us, beyond us, untouchable, 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 incomprehensible, 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 otherly, otherly, otherly. In other words, he's God, <laughs> because this is who God is. He's different from you and me. Theologians talk about the transcendence of God. 
It's a good word. It's not a biblical word, so you don't have to learn it. But if you've got all the biblical words mastered, add it to your vocabulary. He transcends. He's beyond what we can know. He's beyond what we can reach. He's utterly, utterly, utterly. He's transcendent. That's the holiness of God. So when we sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, I don't sing it the way I used to sing it. Because I'm not only thinking sinless, 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 although that's certainly part of it. And I know some of you know this as well. And you know, it changes the way I sing the song. It changes the way I think too. God is just absolutely and utterly beyond Pat Abendroth's comprehension or reach. Blows your mind. You just can't fathom this, 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 this idea. This, it's not an idea. It's a reality of God. I mean, it's just it's more than you can handle. Getting a sip of water out of a fire hydrant to the fireman on the second row. I mean, it just blows your mind. You can't handle it. You can't take it in. Now, we also know, and theologians use another word, a word called imminence. And you are not, you're going to be an idolater if you only think he's transcendent, but we typically don't think of transcendence at all. He's also imminent. He's close. See, here's where we start talking about Jesus and what God has done for us. Well, God, distant, far off, untouchable, unreachable, what does he do? Oh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Oh, He reveals Himself to us. That's John chapter 1. And God comes close to us. And, and not only does He become close, He becomes one of us. He enters into the human race and as, as the sinless one so He can ultimately be the sinless sacrifice so He can ultimately bring us to God, we who are not holy without sin, holy as in without sin, to this holy God who is sinless and just and righteous. So I don't want to emphasize one without mentioning the other, but... I'm just trying to do this as an exercise. In the psalm we just read, holiness leads to worship. Or should I say, your understanding, I scratch that, your understanding that God is holy and understanding what that is leads to you worshiping. And I think this is just natural. You figure out God is not your buddy. He's far beyond, far above, there's only one natural thing to do. You are beyond me. Oh, and you've revealed yourself to me? I love this stuff. This is great. This is what I love to have other people grasp and understand. This is why I love to hang around new Christians. I mean, we should do evangelism because the Bible says to. We should do evangelism because we know that all those who have been appointed unto eternal life will believe, Acts 16. You know, just as a bonus, icing on the cake, we should do evangelism. You know, we can give more reasons. Love for our brother. Like, icing on the cake is we get to hang out with new Christians. They become part of the church. And, and you know what it's like, and you have a conversation, well, maybe you don't, and that's tragedy, but having a conversation and somebody comes up to you and, did you, did you know this about holiness? Or, or let's use a different, uh, a different perfection of God. Did you know that God is sovereign and, and, he, and He has decrees and He ordains things to happen and there's no such thing as luck and they're giving you all this? And... Yeah, I did know that. So thankful that you reminded me of how non-passionate I am about it. And I want to be like you and return to my first love, if you will. It's great. 
It's one of the best things. It's one of the things I love. It's what can cause me or have me go to a Bible study and hear the same thing I've heard before and I could do it in my sleep, so to speak. But I'm sitting next to someone who I know is a new Christian and they're hearing it for the first time. So I'm listening through their ears and I'm thinking, man, this stuff is awesome. We need to return to knowing who God is and not assuming we know who God is. We need to make sure we're teaching our children who God is and not assuming that they know who God is. Returning to the fundamentals, returning to the basics. We worship God because of who He is. We worship God in response to God and His perfections. You could do it this way. You could open your Bible and read, starting in Genesis, read all the way through and ask yourself the question, Who is God? You know what that will translate into? That will translate into profound, true, genuine Christian worship. It's not about cranking up the music louder, though I think we should sometimes. And by the way, we'll talk about music in the series, but not today. It's not about being more emotional, though I think we should be sometimes. Knowing who God is. By the way, I think Lord willing, that's what we'll do in the fall when we pick up a when I start preaching again on Sunday nights, we're going to do an Old Testament survey, but not all about, okay, what are the major themes and who are the major characters and all that kind of stuff. What are the major dates? That's fine. That's good. That's helpful. But we're going to read through. I'm going to preach through in a rapid-fire fashion, if you will, the Old Testament. That's the plan anyway. Answering the question, who is God? In other words, we're going to do a series on worship. Fueling our praise, fueling our worship, asking that simple, profound question. Well, we're not quite done with number two. It's in response to God, but not only who He is, but it's also in what, in response to what He has done. And if you would turn to Ephesians 1, we'll just look at one text, one example of this. If you don't like it when preachers repeat things all of the time, sorry, um, but I repeat this all of the time. I, I hope somehow, as you happily bury me someday, <laughs> whether you shed tears or not, I hope you think, that guy talked about Ephesians 1 too much. <laughs> or Ephesians 2, for that matter. I just absolutely just love Ephesians 1. And you know, sometimes how it is, sometimes we become so zealous about something because we've been so wrong for so long that when we finally get it, it's just what we want to die for and it's what we want to talk about all of the time. Some of you know this quite well. But, so I'm, I'm happy to be stuck in this rut because for so long I had it so wrong. Maybe I'm trying to make up for lost time. Ephesians 1, I mean, it's just the ultimate in controversy. Ephesians 1, election, predestination, you've got adoption. It's just all that theology stuff that's controversial that no one should ever talk about. Wrong. Yeah, but it's not really practical. Wrong. That's for seminary. Wrong. You know, what, you know, what, you know what's driving Ephesians 1? What's driving Ephesians 1 is Paul, by the grace of God, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to get you and me to worship God as we should. So he tells us about all the great things God has done. There's no controversy in Ephesians 1. We're the, we're, we're the pathetic sinners to make it controversial. This is all great stuff that's supposed to cause us not to be debating. It's to cause us to praise God. 
Look what it says right there in verse, verse 3. Blessed. That's, that's, that's a word that we could insert some synonyms like praise. Or in our case, just for the sake of the idea, worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he launches off on all these great things God has done for us sinners that we learn about in chapter 2. You want to praise God? Learn about all that God has done in light of the fact that you're a sinner. He gives this big, huge, long run-on sentence in the Greek New Testament. And let's try to read it in that way. Let's get ramped up for it. I'll take a deep breath. Here we go. This is worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ, just as He chose us or elected us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace. Notice the worship, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to the kind intention which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth, in Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory, that's worship, in Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. And I'm about ready to pass out. Dare I say He's excited? Dare I say He's emotional? Dare I say He's worshiping? I know he is, based upon the very way he begins it. I want so badly to give my life to knowing who God is and what he's done so that my life would be worshipped to him. I want so badly as a pastor to, to be pastoring a church filled with people who are who are focusing on, meditating on, wanting, longing after, knowing who God is and what He has done. Because that will be pastoring a worshiping church. Worshiping the one true God who is worthy of our worship. It makes me pray differently. It makes me pray, uh, oh, you know, not in all the, uh, all the different ways that we tend to put our emphasis on prayer. Little Joey has the sniffles. Make him better. That's fine. We make our requests known to Him. All requests. You know, we're having some financial hard times. Lord, please provide. That's good. That's fine. We pray about everything as Jesus taught us. But read through Paul's prayer sometimes just to use his as an example. Yes, he would pray for physical things. But the overarching emphasis ends up being spiritual things. And he says things like this in Colossians 1.10, praying for the Christians that they would be increasing in their knowledge of God. <laughs> why would he do that? We know why he would do that. Because if, he's, if we're increasing in our knowledge of God, then we have fuel on the flames so we can worship God. 
We need to pray for each other differently as well. Not just that as an end in and of itself, okay, God, help us to be good worshipers. Well, that's right, but how do we do that? God, help Joey know who God is as God has revealed himself and respond appropriately. That's what needs to happen. And it does happen. I know it happens. But not like it could. Not like it should. Not like we long for it to. Well, the next time we're together, we will continue on here. And I can't wait. This is one of the hardest things for a pastor to do, to shut his Bible when he's only halfway done with his notes. By next week, there'll be a hole burned in my Bible, if not in my soul, maybe. I don't know. Just, just kidding. But these are, these are the most important things in the world because I believe it really is true, as every catechism worth its salt says, the chief end of mankind is to glorify God. It's worship. Let's pray. Father, thank You for today. Thank You for this exercise we've been able to go through. And it's good, Lord. We want to worship You. We were made to worship You. And You are the supreme object of our affection as Christians. We know that that's right. Lord, help us to grow. Help us to grow in our knowledge of You. Not so that we can simply know more, but so that it would translate into true, vibrant, effective, Christ-honoring, Christ-exalting worship. In His name we pray. Amen.